So, uh, those are our announcements today, and now what I'd like to do is turn our attention to today's Scripture reading, which is from Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, please turn your hearts and your eyes and your ears reverently and humbly to hear uh, the Word of God once and for all delivered to the saints. And Jesus said, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So, uh, if you've been dialing in, you'll recognize that this is really the third uh, Scripture of its kind. Uh, Jesus seemed to to really want to emphasize the importance of not parading uh, our religion and not parading our virtue to other people. and so today what I want to do is, is um, you know, in light of the forum that's coming up tonight, is, is talk about a subject that, of course, Jesus isn't directly addressing because Jesus didn't have the internet. Uh, but at the same time, there's so many principles in here that do apply to life on uh, the internet. And uh, so we're going to talk today, uh, in light of the Sermon on the Mount, about what it might look like to rescue our souls from digital captivity. And what I want to do is start with a personal confession, but before I do that, um, I want to sort of highlight a a drawing that a friend of mine who's a pastor in New York City was given by his uh, seven-year-old daughter about six, eight years ago. And in the picture, uh, she was an only child, uh, she's holding the hands of both of her parents. And, 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 and on her left is her mother, and her mother's holding her hand, uh, looking down at her, you know, making eye contact, smiling. And then holding the other hand is her father, and he is looking the other direction at his phone. And so this is a, this is a young girl who is expressing uh, through art the dynamic of her family of origin. And now, up until January 1st of this year, really, any, virtually any person in my life could have made the same drawing, uh, except I would have been the person looking at the phone. Um, you know, always fully present somewhere else, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, I would have my phone at meals, I would have it at meetings, I would have it when I go to bed, it would be the last thing I looked at uh, before I go to bed, it would be the first thing I looked at when I woke up, Uh, I would have it during my personal devotions as I'm reading the Bible and praying in the morning, I'm also uh, constantly checking email and and social media and those sorts of things, just basically a chronic uh, pervasive multitasker. And... um, What I noticed over the course of a few years was an increase in things like loneliness. Ironically, social media is supposed to connect us, email and the digital world is supposed to connect us like never before, and yet I I felt myself becoming more and more lonely, more anxious, uh, having a harder time uh, sleeping at night, 
experiencing fatigue. So all these physiological effects uh, uh, were, were a byproduct of, of this sort of, I guess, what you could call a digital addiction. I was losing my ability to concentrate, losing my ability to be present uh, with the people around me. Uh, sometimes, I confess to you, I would actually sometimes also have my phone up here in the pulpit while I was preaching to you, uh, checking email, checking uh, other things while I'm giving a sermon. You didn't know that, did you? It's easy to fake things sometimes. So, Andrew Sullivan, this, is, this was the first trigger for me that I might have a, a, a significant problem. Andrew Sullivan, who's a prolific blogger, um, you know, lived the good part of his life online. Uh, he was the editor of <clears throat> The New Republic, re- came out with an article about a year ago, and the title of the article, it's like one of the, the, the title of one of the old Puritan sermons. It's really long. Here's the title, I Used to Be a Human Being. An endless bombardment of news and gossip and images has rendered us manic information addicts. It broke me, and it might break you. And then what pushed me really over the edge to help me discover that maybe I had a serious problem was a New York Times interview with Adam Alter. So Adam Alter is a, um, a social psychologist uh, at NYU. And in this interview, he, uh, you know, he revealed several, you know, dynamics about Silicon Valley in particular that might give us all pause. Steve Jobs did not allow his kids to have an iPad. That's indicator number one. Silicon Valley executives, vast majority of them refused to allow their own children to have devices. There's actually a private school in the San Francisco Bay Area that does not allow technology at all in the classroom and does not, re- does not require technology as, as a means to, to get things done like homework and projects and things like that. Uh, eye things are forbidden. Uh, you would get disciplined. You would get detention if you, if you were caught with an eye thing. Seventy-five percent of the parents of the children in this school are technology executives from Silicon Valley. And so maybe even Silicon Valley itself is telling us something, that the internet is a lot like money. It's a morally neutral thing. There's nothing inherently evil about it. There's nothing inherently virtuous about money. It can be used for very good purposes. It can also become addictive and wreck you. Jesus might say even in our day and age, you cannot love God and the internet. You cannot serve God and the internet. Choose your master. And so, what I want to do, uh, you know, sort of in light of this passage of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, is to talk about some of the things that are potentially lost if, if, if we give our hearts over to likes and fans and follows instead of the pursuit of actual friends and the pursuit of God loss of honesty, loss of community, a loss of health, and, and then an invitation to freedom. So, loss of honesty. Sermon on the Mount is not about the internet, or is it? All of the same core issues are at play here. And what's the core issue, especially in chapter 6 of Matthew? Inauthenticity, posing, faking fine, 
Jesus put it this way, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. Remember, hypocrites were stage actors. They disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Instead, wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret. And so, so the, the Pharisees were posers. They were actors, except all of life was a stage and religion was their costume. And Jesus addresses this Pharisee dynamic in the Sermon on the Mount. He says right here, when you fast, don't make a show of it to the people around you. He says also uh, that, you know, when you pray, you, you shouldn't make a show of that either, but do it in secret. When you give, don't even let your left and right hand know what one another are doing. Be so secretive about your generosity that nobody knows about it except for God, that even your left hand forgets what your right hand is doing. And so, the Pharisee religion, according to the Sermon on the Mount, will flaunt and advertise religious devotion and will take great care to hide things like sins and flaws and weaknesses. And Jesus, the gospel actually calls us in the opposite direction. Instead of flaunting religious devotion, do your religious devotion in secret, just you and the Father. And instead of hiding your sins and flaws and weaknesses, confess them, not just to God. The Scriptures even tell us about how healing is bound up in confessing our sins to one another. And so, you can see that, that, that a lot of online engagement is, is, is really, in principle, no different than, than Pharisee religion as is presented to us in Matthew chapter 6. There was a review, a book review that I read recently uh, on a book uh, by uh, Notre Dame sociologist Donna Fritas, and she wrote this book on teenagers and social media. I think it's called The Happiness Effect. So, here, here's an excerpt from the review. Social media, see if you can hear the Phariseeism in this. Social media is creating a drive to appear perfect at any cost, a drive to look perfectly happy all the time. Young people are more concerned with appearing happy than with really being happy. Social media turns us all into micro-celebrities poised to crumble under the constant evaluation of strangers as we manage our personal brand. Facebook and Twitter are the anti-confession. You hear the Phariseeism in that? The anti-confession, the places we pretend that we have it all together. Or like Brad Paisley sings, I'm so much cooler online. You remember those some of you are old enough, some of you aren't, uh, those commercials for the, the Canon Rebel uh, camera that Andre Agassi, tennis player Andre Agassi did. Remember, at the beginning of the commercial, he walks out of this Lamborghini, uh, uh, you know, just the picture of, of, of wealth and success and, 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 and having it all together. He, he steps out of the Lamborghini, and then he, he tips his, his sunglasses. And, and you remember the words? Image is everything. 
Some years later, Andre Agassi wrote an autobiography called Open. If you've read it, you might remember that Andre Agassi confessed that he has always hated tennis, always hated it, so much so that it, it, it led him into a drug addiction. And the irony of that is that everybody perceived that Andre Agassi was the happiest, most positive, most all-in-with-tennis person on tour for, for, for years. Reputation does not always match up with reality. Brand does not always match up with the true person. Loss of honesty is one great risk when we addict ourselves to screens just as well as when we addict ourselves to religious devotion and the acts thereof. There's also a loss of community that happens because our online selves are also our edited revised, cosmetically managed selves. You don't get the truth about somebody online. You get a fraction of the truth. Profiles are costumes. Online profiles in many ways become what prayer and fasting and giving were for the Pharisees. Look at me. Look at how happy I am. Look at how together I am. And the truth of the matter is, you might be falling apart. You know, one of the student essays from, from, uh, from one of the, the, the students that will be introduced tonight, um, who, you know, did this essay competition, you know, teen perspective on social media. Listen to this expert, uh, excerpt. This is from a 10th grader. It will oftentimes take a teenager an entire 30 minutes to edit a single image so as to look perfect in the eyes of viewers online. When we teenagers look at our phones, there are inherent presumed levels of competition that happen. People on the other side of the screen become rivals. Do I dress as well as that person? Are they a better singer than me? Are they a better athlete? Do they have more friends? Do I measure up? Is my performance good enough? What he's talking about is a teenage version of a Luke 18 Pharisee, the anti-confession. You know, while the tax collector is over here saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, the Pharisee is saying, thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors, and so on. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Look at, all, look, at, look at my costume. Look at my costume. Look how happy I am. Look how put together I am. It's a good thing that the online thing is just a teenage problem, isn't it? You know, Patty and I, more than once, We've spent an afternoon or an evening with, with adults whose lives are falling apart. And the next day, she'll be scrolling through Instagram, and she'll say, can you believe this? This person just posted a picture about how happy their lives are, living the dream. 
faking fine? What, what is it that, 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 that makes us feel this pressure to pose? You know, Russ Ramsey, I, I, yeah, I wasn't here when he preached his sermon on these things a few weeks ago, but it was magnificent. You really need to download it um, and listen to it if you, if you weren't able to hear it. But one of the things that he pointed out about sort of flaunting religious acts before men, he pointed out that some people lie about their church attendance. He said, what possible reward could you receive lying about your church attendance, asking your kid to sign you in when you're not there? Asking your friends to sign you in when you're not there, what possible reward could you receive from lying about your church attendance? You know, we pretend. You know, if you were here on Easter, I got pretty raw. I went off the script, which my wife always advises me not to do. I went off, off the script a little bit, got really honest, got really raw about just some, some of my own personal darkness that I'd been feeling leading up to Good Friday. And, you know, so many of you have reached out and said, oh, so appreciate it, transparency. Your transparency means so much. Your transparency, appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to let you know that that was an invitation. That was not a show. That was an invitation because, because if, if you don't do anything with my transparency, then, then it really becomes, with all due respect, voyeurism. It becomes you maybe living out a false expression of Christianity through your messengers or through the authors that you read or through the, the, the teachers that you listen to. You see, any time that, that, that a pastor or a teacher or an author is transparent in such a way that it expresses belief that the gospel is true, that I am worse than I think, and God's love and mercy and kindness is infinitely greater than I ever dared to hope, and so therefore I am going to be okay. If all you do is watch that and observe it and read about it without ever becoming a practitioner of it, it is voyeurism. If Jesus is at the center of our communal life, then we live toward one another as if we really believed it's true that we are worse than we think, because the Bible tells me so. And Jesus loves us all, this we know, because the Bible tells us so, that we're known and loved, that we're exposed and not rejected. See, what a church should be like, the dynamics, the one another dynamics of any church over which Jesus is reigning functionally, it should feel a lot like an addiction recovery meeting. Painfully honest, where number one of the 12 steps is, I'm the problem, and here is specifically why. You know, I'm Scott, and I get road rage. I'm Scott, and I'm deeply insecure. I'm Scott, and I deal with anxiety and depression on a fairly regular basis. I'm Scott, and this, that, or the other. I'm Scott, and I'm mean to my dog. You know, or maybe something a lot deeper than that. I don't know what your issues are, but this is an invitation to, to, to experience and to taste and see that the Lord is good and kind and forgiving, and He covers the very worst parts of you through one another. And, of course, that's a, that's, that that. That involves a prerequisite 
of us embodying the gospel in this way toward one another, of extending to each other the same grace that that so many of you extend to your pastor, to your flawed pastor, to extend it to one another in your homes and in your your groups and in your, your time together. If there's somebody that you avoid during worship or somebody that you avoid during communion, you've got to deal with that. You've got to really engage the, the, the cheer up, you know, good news that everybody's worse than we think, so let's just all be honest about it. But God loves us all. God's not done with us. He will complete the good work that He's begun in us. So, potentially a loss of community, potentially a loss of health. So, this is where I, I talk for a moment about the porn effect. And, you know, we've had several emails, you know, is this, is this forum tonight going to be going to be child-friendly and child-safe, and I, I'm, going to, I'm going to say a couple things. Number one, we're not asking our panelists to G-rate their talks, and so I don't know what our definition is of safe, but I will say this. If you can't have frank conversations with your kids around these things at age 10, 11, 12 in church, you're missing the reality of the rest of their lives. Chances are five years ago, they've they've been exposed to the things that you're afraid they might be exposed to tonight. And so, I would urge you to take the risk and bring them uh, if you have concern and look at it as an opportunity for a springboard into conversation. No, we're not going to show images or anything like that, but we are going to have an expert on these things who did his PhD on what the, the... epidemic of pornography is doing to vandalize the human soul. It's a longtime friend of mine named Mark Fitzy, and he'll highlight things similar to what Barna recently highlighted in a 2016 study. This is activity on one website alone, only one website in 2016. 4.6 billion hours of porn were watched at just one website. That's 524,000 years of pornography or 17,000 complete lifetimes. People watched 92 billion videos or an average of 12.5 hours for every person on earth. And that's just one website. We've said this before, there's more money spent on pornography. It's sort of the, it's like LDL cholesterol, it's, it's, it's a silent killer to our culture. We don't know it's killing us, but it is. More money is spent on pornography than the big three sports of basketball, football, and baseball. That's how epidemic it is. So here's a, a common grace statement from comedian Russell Brand who put out a video couple of years ago expressing his own concerns about the effect of pornography on him. He said this, pornography is not a problem because it shows us too much. It's a problem because it shows us too little. Pornography is making it impossible to relate to our own sexuality, our own psychology, and our own spirituality. Porn is a drug, not good for me. It represents voyeurism, obsession with looking at women versus interacting with women, objectification, fear of true intimacy. I don't like pornography. I haven't been able to make a long-term commitment to not looking at it. It's affecting my ability to relate to women, myself, my own sexuality, my own spirituality. I'll leave the rest for 
Dr. Fitzy to unpack uh, this afternoon. But what I want to do is close before we go to the Lord's table with the invitation to us all toward freedom. You know, the, the book review uh, from the book written by Donna Friedis, the, the Notre Dame sociologist, also said this, what we really need is the perfection of Jesus, which we find not in polishing up our lives and manicuring our profiles, but in confessing our weaknesses and need for others, and especially in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that finished work of Christ on the cross says precisely what Jesus says here. Your Father sees you in secret. He sees you, and He sees through you. He knows you, backwards and forwards, up and down, inside and out, knows you better than you know yourself. And on the one hand, that's terrifying because He knows our secrets. And on the other hand, it's liberating because we don't have to pose anymore. Because although we are much worse than we think we are, much worse than we would ever dare to openly admit, we're infinitely loved. We're more deeply loved. He loves us more than we love ourselves. That's how much He loves us. He loves us to the uttermost, loves us all the way to the death, loves stronger than death. And the reward that the Father is talking about here. He's not just the giver of the, the reward. He's also the substance of it. He is the reward. The world says, control the narrative. Manage your brand. Image is everything. Advertise that you're happy and together. And deny and hide the very worst things about yourselves. But your Father who sees in secret says, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. Rest in my love as you do so. You are known and loved. You are exposed and not rejected. You are naked before the eyes of God and need not feel ashamed. You know, His whole mission for all of us is to get us back to Eden in that way. The world says don't trust anyone. Be content with likes and follows and fans with counterfeit versions of connection but don't have real friends. Don't pursue the deepest knowledge of one another. Be satisfied with edited, polished up costumes, fractional, partial versions of yourself. But your Father who sees in secret says you, and it's a plural, speaking to community, there is grace I give to you. I see all of you in secret, and you have my favor. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. This grace that I give to you, now give it to one another. Make sure that your church feels like addiction therapy, because everybody's drunk on something. It's not alcohol or some substance. Everybody's drunk on something, ambition, money, greed, reputation, recognition. Fill in the blank. 
So let your church feel like therapy and, and, and contribute to that climate. Appropriately confess your sins to one another that you may all be healed. And then the world says manufacture the feeling of love through a screen. Don't risk actually being known. Because even C.S. Lewis said, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly even broken. But your Father who sees in secret says, let me be your safe place. As Scotty Smith, one of my longtime mentors, says, this God cannot love you more and He will not love you less. Because Jesus said those very last words of his life, which have now become the first words of yours. It is finished. The work is done. It's complete. No pressure on you. Enter into the enjoyment of his love. Then the last statement, before we go to the table to eat, I want to address this statement Jesus made, when you fast. He assumes that we will fast. He assumes that that Lent will, will be a regular practice whether you observe the church calendar or not, that Lenten practice will be the practice of every Christian. There will be self-denial. There will be a voluntary depriving of the self in order to make space in the heart for God of things that we're tempted to give ourselves to. The glutton in us needs to be self-controlled with food. The materialist and the consumer in us needs to live a life of generous liberality. The control freak in us needs to observe Sabbath every single week of our lives, even during the hard seasons, because Easter doesn't just come once a year. It comes 52 weeks a year. Or with our digital interaction. Here's what I've done, and that doesn't mean you have to do it too. This is, this is my path to get healthy. I've taken the email app off of my phone. I only check email and social media three times a day for no more than 15 minutes. I don't carry my phone into meetings. I don't have my phone out at meals. I don't look at my phone or at the screen after dinner. It never goes into my bedroom. And in the morning, I don't look, I don't look at it until I've had a good solid hour and a half of reading and reflection and meditation just those basic practices since January 1 have revolutionized my life. I'm starting to feel healthy again. I've still got a long way to go. I stumble sometimes. But the bottom line is, whatever it takes, open up the room that's there in your heart to follow through with what Jesus says, that man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by likes and follows and swipes alone. Man does not live by images, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Thanks be to God. So let's pray now as we prepare our hearts for the supper and as the pastors and elders come forward and as the children also join us. Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, we're all junkies. We're all addicted to something. Maybe it's not a screen. Maybe it's something altogether different, but, but Lord, we pray that you would unaddict us. And we pray that you would help us to understand and to know that the, things that we're re- the thing that we're really chasing after when we chase after any addiction and any dysfunction is the healthy, life-giving love of our Father in heaven, of the one who sees in secret, who knows everything about us, the very worst, 
and who also is poised and prepared to give us a reward anyway. Thanks be to God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.